what will people say? What will people think of me? Those are the often unspoken but stubbornly persistent questions driving the next moves of those who are afflicted with the subject of today's message, which is the fear of man. The scripture that we're looking at this morning is Proverbs 29, verse 25. Proverbs 29, verse 25, and find United Baptist fashion, we'll get through about half of it. Fear of man lays a snare. This is one of those scriptures that you might be inclined as you're reading to sort of read over. You might just say, well, that's a neat little snippet there, but it really doesn't have much to do with me. Maybe this is one of those passages you you think, well, that has to do with somebody else. I just want to caution you. Remember, we went over this at the introduction of this series. The Proverbs are meant to be read slowly. They're meant to be read one at a time. They're meant to be pondered, to be read thoughtfully. So before we would dismiss anything that we're reading in this book, we really ought to sit with it a little bit. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, enlighten us. How does this how does this affect me? How might this affect me? The advice when we're reading Proverbs is kind of always not so fast. It's not a narrative, right? It doesn't have a plot. It's not going to come to an end. It's wisdom. So take your time with it. We might come across that that verse and it, Proverbs 29, 25 and, and say, well, that, that doesn't have anything to do with me because I don't suffer from fear of man. That's not me. I don't have that problem. I even have a no-fear decal on my truck. It proves I'm not afraid of anything. It's understandable why we might not want to cop to the idea of a fear of man. That's, that's not a very attractive position, is it? It actually feels like kind of a weak position that we worry too much about how people think about us or how they perceive us. We don't want to be weak. We want to be strong. We don't like being weak at all. But let me ask you a few questions. These are adapted from a book I would recommend, especially if you know that you struggle with the fear of man. It's by Dr. Ed Welch, and it's called When People Are Big and God is Small. When People Are Big and God is Small. So this is sort of a, like a little test to see if maybe this passage actually has something to do with you today. Bless you. Little pin. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism for the fear of man. Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no even when wisdom dictates that you should? Well, then you're a people pleaser, which is another euphemism for the fear of man. Do you need, and in this case, need is in quotations, do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you, respect you, unless you under? Understand the biblical parameters of marital commitment. Your spouse will become the one you fear. Your spouse will control you. Your spouse will quietly take the place of God in your life. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? If self-esteem is a recurring theme for you, chances are that your life revolves around what others think. You reverence or fear their opinions. You need them to buttress your sense of well-being and identity. You need them to fill you up. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed or fear as if you might be exposed as an imposter? 
The sense of being exposed is an expression of the fear of man. It means the opinions of other people, especially their possible opinion that you're a failure, are able to control you. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you get easily embarrassed? If so, people and their perceived opinions probably define you. You're exalting the opinions of others to the point where you're ruled by them. Do you ever lie, especially little white lies? Lying uh, and other forms of living in the dark are usually ways to make ourselves look better before other people. Are you jealous of other people? Then you're controlled by them and by their possessions. Do people make you angry? Do they make you depressed? Do they make you crazy? If so, they're probably controlling you. They're probably the controlling center of your life. Do you avoid people? If so, even though you might not say that you need people, you're still controlled by them. Isn't a hermit dominated by the fear of man? So there's lots of manifestations of the fear of man. Now, there are lots of iterations of this particular malady that afflicts so many. I just thought I'd stop there because my point isn't to go through a whole list. My point is to get you thinking to get you considering, well, maybe this passage of Scripture actually does have something to say to me today. Maybe this one is going to come home to roost a little bit. Dr. Welch concludes this. He says, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. Let's pray. Father, we gather here, and I'm so grateful that we can, but we gather here to hear you. We, we want you to speak to us, and we're thankful for your word. And we pray, Lord, that the word spoken about your word truly reflects your thoughts, and more importantly, your message to us. So help us to hear you today, Lord. Help us to hear what you have to say, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The fear of man lays a snare, but those who trust in the Lord are saved. So what exactly is the fear of man? Always good to sort of define the term. Fear of man is what happens when we allow people to exceed the throne of God. When we set our hearts on the approval of others instead of the approval of God. When we are more motivated by what people think than we are by what God thinks. When the opinions and desires of others become our master, when we would rather take our chances and disappoint God as opposed to disappointing people, that's the fear of man. And the proverb here says that the fear of man lays a snare. A snare is a trap. Not all of you understand that, but a snare is a trap. It's usually made of wire or some sort of cord. It's shaped like a noose. Uh, the hunter puts it in the path, the well-worn path of his prey, and fixes it to something solid like the ground or a tree or maybe beside a pile of bait. And the animal then, uh, running on its normal path or being attracted to this bunch of food, steps into the snare. And the snare then begins to constrict on the animal's leg or around the animal's neck, and it immobilizes the animal until it either dies or the hunter comes back and finishes it off. The Bible says that the fear of man lays this trap, lays a snare. So what is the trap? What is the snare that the fear of man lays? Well, I think it is this. I think it is the wrong belief that if I can make people happy with me, they will think I'm awesome. And if they don't think I'm awesome, 
If I can make them happy with me, at least they'll like me. And if I can't make them like me, at least if I can make them happy, I can make them not dislike me. In other words, I'm going to try to make people happy, believing that they're, in turn, going to make me happy. When we do that, of course, we're, we're placing the ultimate cause of our happiness in this world or our unhappiness in the hands of fellow human beings. Now, I want to say that out loud again so you can think about it. We're placing our ultimate sense of happiness or unhappiness in the hands of fellow human beings, making them responsible for it. Does that sound to you like a good idea? Because I want to remind you that these are the same people who lock themselves out of their houses, who can't find their cars in parking lots, who get up and walk from one room to another with no idea why, and you're going to trust them with your happiness. Okay, so just on its face, this is a bad idea, okay? But beyond it being a bad idea, there's something even much more sinister at play. When we entrust our happiness or cause people to be responsible for our ultimate happiness or unhappiness, we are changing our basic relationship with people. As soon as we make them responsible for making us feel okay, as soon as we make them responsible for making us feel worthwhile, as soon as, as soon as we depend on them for a sense of approval on this globe, we are no longer serving them. They are serving us. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a big idea to you, because it's kind of the way of the world, isn't it, that we just get people to serve us. That's what we do. We do it by nature. We're selfish that way. And there's so much out there that's designed this way. Is that really a big deal that people would serve us? It is a big deal for a Christian. It's a big deal. It's a shirking of our heavenly calling. Because Jesus said this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We get our honor from above. We don't need to get our honor here, horizontally, we're going to get our honor from above. And we serve Jesus, we are called to serve Jesus, and we serve Jesus by following him, by following his ways, by following his words, right? And we receive honor from above the same way that he did when he heard, this is my son, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So we are to follow Jesus in this life, which begs the question sort of like, well, then what do how did Jesus live? What did Jesus do? What does Jesus say? So think just for a second about Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give himself a ransom for many. Think of John chapter 13, where the Son of God, God himself, girded himself with the servant's towel and stooped to wash the dust and sweat off his disciples' feet. Setting for them and for us an example of the posture that his followers should assume as they make their way through life and instructing them and instructing us, you go and do the same thing. Think about Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus who considered not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus came to serve, and Jesus clearly calls us to serve. Our Heavenly Father desires that we be sincerely interested in meeting the needs of others. Back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 15, verse 2, says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Yet when we are driven by the fear of man, instead of serving others as we seek to please them or work so hard to, not to displease them, we are serving them in that way for our good. You see why that's a problem? We end up relying on them for our sense of worth, for our identity, and so on. And at that point, we are, we are no longer looking out for them. We are binding them to an unspoken contract where it's now their job to look out for us. So the fear of man is serious because it reverses the, the role that we're supposed to have in the world. We can't really be ministers that way when all we're ever trying to do is be ministered to. It changes our view from God-centered to self-centered, and it changes the focus of our worship which in worship is just the declaration of what we value most, it changes the focus of our worship from God and puts it on people. It's serious. It's serious also because it restricts spiritual growth. You and I, as followers of Jesus, are in a constant process of transformation. Praise the Lord. He's working on a sanctification. He's cleaning us up and making us ready to use. Right? That's what he's doing. But when we succumb to the fear of man, it's almost like we put the brakes on. We stop growing. We don't go any further. See, one of the things that a snare does is it stops an animal in its tracks. It catches them, and, and they can only go so far. They're restricted by the radius of the snare. And very often, an animal caught in a snare will do just that. They will just run, run around in a circle. They'll tear up the earth. They'll create a, a path, so to speak. They expend a ton of energy but they don't go anywhere. They don't make any progress. They certainly don't escape. Have you ever felt that way? Like sometimes in your life you're just spinning around and around and you're not moving and you're not growing. Well, the fear of man does that to us. When we suffer from the fear of man, we are tethered by our over-concern for human approval. And it makes us scoot around in these really narrow circles, which eventually become ruts ruts that we cannot get out of on our own. That's what happens. Life for us becomes a series of actions. We're just trying to uh, please this one and not displease that one and, and endear ourselves to this one and not offend that one. After a while, you feel like the little boy with it trying to fill up all the holes, right? And finger in the dike. Can't keep up. Can't keep all these people satisfied. This whole thing's going to come down on me. A scary thought, isn't it? We just don't move spiritually when we are stuck by the fear of man. In their book, uh, Courage, Fighting Fear with Fear. But let me just quickly 
give you some resources today. If you have a problem with the uh, fear of man, I already mentioned Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God is Small. And then there's this one, Joshua Mack and Wayne Mack, Courage, Fighting Fear with Fear. And then there are two by an author named Elise Fitzpatrick. One is Idols of the Heart, and the other is Overcoming Fear, Worry, and Anxiety. All of those are excellent resources. Now, the best resource we have, obviously, is Scripture. And so always we want to go to Scripture. But sometimes we need a little extra push or somebody to organize those sorts of thoughts in a way. We will put those resources in your hands. If you don't have them, if you want them, you see me after the service and we will get them to you. Um, and or if you need those, repeat it. But this is not part of the whole thing. Because our, our desire is not that anybody be stuck, right? Our desire is that we grow. And that's what God wants. Well, in courage, fighting fear with fear, Wayne and Joshua Mack write this. It's impossible to be a bondservant of Christ if you are a slave to man's opinions and man's desires. If your main priority in life is getting people to like you or think well of you, you won't be able to live all out for God. You just won't be able to. You'll be stuck. To the degree that you and I are stuck by the fear of man, we can't live that God-glorifying life we were destined for, that we were made for, made by God, for God, to give him glory. And so the message paraphrase of Proverbs 29.25, I think, is a pretty good one. It says, the fear of human opinion disables That takes us out of the game. It disables us. The fear of man robs us of the type of a life that the Lord wants for us, and it invariably robs God of glory, which is the honor he deserves. Because even if we don't do this on purpose, and most of it is not on purpose. In fact, a lot of people just struggle asking themselves, why on earth am I like this? Because I am. When we do it, even when we don't do it on purpose, we're orienting our lives around pleasing others just so that they would think good of us or not evil of us. And in that way, we're giving them the honor, the deference, the reverence that really belongs to God and God alone. Well, maybe at this point you've reconsidered your thoughts about the fear of man and think, well, this could have something to do with me. Perhaps you can see its presence in your life now, and, and at least I would hope you would see how serious of an issue it is. Some of you at the beginning of this message, and maybe even now, are not convinced that the fear of man is an issue for you. Nope, not an issue. Uh, praise God if it's not. Quite possible that it isn't for some of you. But I would say this. I think for many, many more, the fear of man is an issue. In fact, as I'm speaking, some of you are nodding your heads, and you're saying, yeah, I see that, I see that in me, and I see, I see me in that. Yeah. And worse than that, some of you are, are sitting here as I speak about the fear of man, knowing what an issue is for you, it is for you. And you feel a bit like you're drowning. And to this point, all I've done is throw you a cement block. I'm not trying to, uh, to expedite your demise, my dear ones. But I am willing to say, I know this is a big issue, and I understand that it is a struggle. And just like in the spirit of Christ, right, the desire is not to bury you, but to raise you up. It's to encourage you and to give you some degree of skill or knowledge or idea about how you're going to get over this so that you can live the life that the Lord has destined for you. The fear of man is 
is a real weight, a real burden, a real struggle, a real binder. What do we do about it? How do we get over it? How do we get past it? Well, to be, to be honest, if you're interested in a fuller um, response or treatment of this, then I'd encourage you to come back next week. Because next week we'll deal with the second half of this proverb, hint, hint. Um, if you read the second half of the proverb, you're, you're on your way to understanding how we're going to how we're going to get past it, but I, that doesn't mean I can't give you a few thoughts uh, for us to leave on this morning. The first is this: if you if you think this might be an issue for you, or you know that it is an issue for you, I want to encourage you simply to confront it. Begin by confronting the fear of man in your life. That is, meditate on it. Don't run away from it. Guess what? You're not perfect. You're not. You're not going to be perfect. So it's okay if you if you have to acknowledge this. Yeah, I struggle with this. I'd encourage you to prayerfully meditate on on your decision making process, how you conduct life, when you say yes, when you say no, and why. What's renting space in your head and keeping you up at night, and why? What are you worried about losing? What are you worried about not having? as it relates to others. These are all questions to prayerfully ponder. But really, all that is in the spirit of this, of confrontation, of coming right at it, saying, yeah, this is what it is. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm going to try to call it the same thing that God calls it, right? It's always a good, good counsel. Call it what the Bible calls it. Call it what God calls it. What is it, by the way? What is fear of the man, fear of man at its root? I can give you a short answer. It's sin. Said, well, Pastor, that's not the good news I was coming to hear today. That's twice now. <laughs> Three strikes and I'm out. No, listen. To, to call it what it is and to recognize that it's sin is that is good news. It is sin um, because at minimally, fear of man is disobedience to God's command to us not to worry. So it's disobedience. The Lord says, don't worry, and we choose to worry. And uh, so, yeah, minimally, it's disobedience. How many times in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus say, don't worry? How many times have you read that in your word? Do not be afraid. Philippians says, be anxious for nothing. The Psalms say, don't fret. Don't, don't fret. So minimally, this is a sin because it's, it's a disobedience to God's command not to worry. But it goes a little bit deeper than that, a little bit further, because ultimately fear of man is idolatry. I have displaced God, and I have placed in God's spot something, someone else. And the really bad thing about that is when we push that, which we should be pushing these things, I learned that that idol isn't the person, it's not my spouse, it's not always my my employer, it's not my friend, uh, my church member, The thing I'm worried about most in this world is me. The idol is self. Because all these contortions that I'm engaged in are just designed to make me look good. Or at least not make me look bad. So it's idolatry. And we know what the Bible says about idolatry, right? It says it over and again. No, the Lord says, you'll have no idols before me. And then that idolatry we find out is actually a reverence or a worship of the self. And we know what the Bible says about that, right? Jesus said it. If you want to be my disciple, 
If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Well, it's sin. That's bad news. No, it's not. Because we know what to do with sin. Right? As Christians, we know what to do with sin. We know how sin can be taken care of. The scripture directs us again. And so, confront it, but next, confess it. Confess it. Say the truth about it. Say the same thing about it that God says. Psalm 32, King David wrote this. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. All day long. If you keep silent in sin, you keep silent in this fight, you think it's your own to carry or to bear, you're going to have that experience of King David where God is trying to change him and he's trying to do it on his own. Like like my little son who wouldn't let me help him with his training, take his training, because I do it by myself. And, oh, fine, whatever. Heartbreaking as a parent to hear stuff like that. Like, don't you need me? But anyway, that's another sermon. <laughs> Actually, it's kind of the same sermon, to be truthful. It really, it really is the same thing. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge, let's look, I acknowledge my sin to you. Why do we, why do we run from God? Why do we not tell him what he already knows? I acknowledge my sin to you. And I didn't cover my iniquity, so David. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Amen. I will confess it and you will forgive. And that's exactly what the scripture teaches. That is what to do with it. So yes, it's sin and that doesn't make us feel good about it. But we know what to do with sin. We take our sin to God. And we confess it. We don't try to cover it up. We don't try to gussy it up. We don't try to make it prettier than it really is. We just say, this is what it is. This is who I am. This is how I am, God. And I'm telling you what you already know, but I'm, I'm admitting it, and I'm confessing it, and I'm seeking your forgiveness. And the Bible promises that when we do that, when we confess our sins to God, he is so faithful, and he is completely just, and he will forgive us of our sins, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God does, so we must confess. Always associated with confession is this idea that we talk about quite a bit here of repentance. Well, to repent means to turn. It means to go in a different direction. It isn't enough to confess. There's something that follows confession, and that is repentance. Moving in a different direction. And here's where I think we do trip up a little bit, or maybe we fall down a little bit, where we say, okay, Lord, I confess it. This is my sin. Would you fix that for me? And God's willing to work with you. I promise you that. God's willing to work with you, but you're not really asking him to do for yourself what he's telling you to do already, are you? Right? So the thing about repentance is there's something for us to do as well. If I really want to leave the fear of man in the rearview mirror, I've got to make some moves that take me away from it. I have some things to do. And if you've ever counseled with me, then you tire of hearing something to this end that if you, if you bake with the same ingredients, you get the same cake. And if you want a different cake, you better put in some different ingredients. 
And that's what life is like. Lord, I want a different cake. I want a different way. I want a different track. And God would be saying, okay, what are you going to do differently? How are you going to change? How by my spirit are you going to start to take the steps you need to take to free yourself from the fear of man? So let me, let me give you something. We're going to confront it. We're going to confess it. And then we're going to begin. And I say begin because you can't do anything about what's behind you other than confess it and receive forgiveness. Okay? You've made mistakes. You've fallen prey to this. You've been trapped in it. Maybe your whole life you've been doing this. And you feel quite hopeless. But you cannot do anything about that record. That drives a perfectionist crazy, doesn't it? Any perfectionists in here this morning? Oh, less of you than will admit it. But there's, uh, there's more of you than would admit it, actually. Uh, that kind of thing drives us bananas, um, knowing that we've created circumstances and been part and parcel of things we can't just go back and fix or redo. What do we do? We begin. We begin now. And I say now, as in why wait? And I don't care if you're 99 years old and you struggle with this, you still begin now to do this. Cultivate a supreme reverence for God. This is what we're missing. It's, it's a supreme reverence for God. It's not that we don't have any reverence for God. We do. We like God. We love God. We worship God. But we don't honestly filter all of our decisions and our ideas and our motivation through Him. He is not the first and primary consideration of our lives generally. It's a hard thing to do, but it's an important thing to do. Cultivate a supreme reverence for God. God has to truly take that number one spot in our lives. We have to get to that place where we can honestly say that he is the first and primary consideration. And then we go, well, okay, that's nice. That's, that's still a little bit lofty. How on earth do we go about doing this? And let me give you just two ideas, and then we'll wrap up. The first is this. Make this the subject of your prayer. Do you really want to revere God, number one? Do you really want him to have that first place in your heart? Then you're going to have to pray about this. And I have to implore, beg, beseech, whatever word you want to use, God. You know how I am constantly battling all this competition in my heart to put you first. And I need you. And I want you to take that primary spot. But I cannot do it myself. You can't do it yourself. I'm, you'll, you're not going to hear from this pulpit, oh, try a little harder. You're going to hear very often, you can't. You can't. You need the Spirit of God to work with you in this. The thirst after him, the way that the deer pants for the water brooks, is not a natural thing. So you need help. You won't love God, God wholeheartedly without his help. Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher, said this. He said, if God would not give me a heart to love him, I would I never had a heart. See, God has to give me that heart. And if he won't give me that heart, I would rather not even have one. But it's still a gift from God, right? The heart we need to love God is not something we're going to come up with through a lot of effort as much as it is prayerful dependence on the Lord. So make this a, a matter of prayer. Truly make it a subject of prayer. And second, I want to suggest to you this, that you, that you, in this, beginning this journey away from the fear of man, this journey toward freedom, which you need, 
is that you spend some quality time, some consistent time, meditating on the gospel, contemplating the gospel. And the reason I say that is because, and scripture tells us, is the cross is the reassurance, all the reassurance one needs to know that God is on our side. Okay, that's what the cross tells us. Romans 8 says that. That God is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's an important uh, understanding for us to have and to cultivate. So if I, if I spend time contemplating that cross, I understand there the Son of God hung, was killed for my sin because of his gracious Heavenly Father who sent him in order that he might ransom me in order that he might take on himself my transgressions. And why did he do that? Because he needed Scott Connors on his team? That's right. Say it out loud. No. Because he loves you. That's it. That's it. Because he loves you and because he's for you. Plain and simple. That's what the cross tells us. But we contemplate the gospel, which is not just the cross, right? Jesus Christ crucified buried and risen the resurrection is all the hope we need to be convinced that God has all the power necessary to meet any need we ever have that's the resurrection power this is the apostle Paul I wish you understood this he would say to the to the Ephesians I wish we all did think about that cross think about that empty tomb Think about what Jesus has done for us because he loves us. Think that though we struggle to love God first and wholeheartedly, Jesus never did. And where we are overcome with the fear of man that distracts us from our mission, that leads us to compromise at times, that tempts us to, to want the glory that belongs to God alone, Though we are tempted by these things and overcome by these things, Jesus never was. Tempted in all things, but without sin. Able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Understand what we're up against, but without sin. Now think about this. When your Heavenly Father looks at you, He sees the perfect record of his son. That's what he sees. You see you see your failures, you see your misgivings, you see your struggles and your shortcomings, but you do understand that Christ has paid for that. So when the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect record of his son. Meditate on that. Think about that. Contemplate that. You are accepted in Christ. You are accepted Christ already. Meditate on that good news. Ray Ortland has written in his commentary on the Proverbs this little paragraph I'm going to end with. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of man is the beginning of folly. Let's all admit it's a real problem among us. We're always performing, hoping for applause. Then we can consider ourselves successful. Then we can feel good about our lives. 
We even perform in front of ourselves in the theater of our minds. We are constantly going on stage to build emotional capital from human applause and attention, but it's all false. What if people find out what frauds we really are? Here's our man-made religion. Our God is human approval. Our heaven is the spotlight. Our hell is bad reviews. Our ritual of worship is keeping up appearances. But the gospel puts Christ on stage and says to us, His performance is your review. His performance is your review. You can stop posing. You can stop fearing exposure. You can stop looking back over your shoulder and worrying about the sins of yesterday. You can know for certain today that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life because of Christ. If you fear the Lord enough, let that gospel satisfy you. You will be bold and confident and valiant as a lion like Christ himself. The Lord is on my side. That's what the psalm says. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What man 